Welcome to the Resources for Integrated Care webinar series, Caring for Individuals with Alzheimer's Disease and Related Dementias. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live in the fall of 2015. This webinar series is presented by the Lewin Group in collaboration with Community Catalyst and the American Geriatric Society and is supported through the Medicare-Medicaid Coordination Office and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to ensuring beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes the full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated, coordinated care to Medicare Medicaid enrollees, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations and care models. To learn more about current efforts, please visit resourcesforintegratedcare.com. In this podcast, Dr. Jerry Hall, a clinical nurse specialist at the Banner Alzheimer's Institute, will explore the process of preventing and managing non-cognitive behaviors in dementia. I'm delighted to be here. I've got a lot of slides. Next slide, please. Um, and I'm going to go through them fairly quickly. I'm hoping you get the gist of this um, and have access to the slides at a later time for further study. When we're planning care for someone with Alzheimer's-type dementia or any dementia, we look primarily at the pre-morbid personality. Who was this person? How did they choose to spend their lives? The type of dementia the person has, the symptom presentation, the usual disease trajectory. We know now that if we follow the pattern of functional decline in someone with Alzheimer's, we can really pinpoint where they are in their disease fairly accurately. Uh, safety issues and then the caregiver issues. Next slide, please. With the non-Alzheimer dementias, there are two types that we see a lot of. Vascular dementia is really pretty rare by itself. It's usually part of a mixed dementia. Frontotemporal degeneration, or FTD, is comes in several different variants. It's where there's deterioration in one side or the other of uh, the frontal lobe and the temporal lobes. If uh, the person has non-dominant side changes, what we tend to see is what we call behavioral variant. This is a patient who's narcissistic and negative. They're very disinhibited. They have obsessions, loss of empathy, and one of the critical factors is they have a nosognosia, which is no insight. You can tell them they have the disease over and over, and they have no clue. They have grandiose behaviors, lack of boundaries with others, antisocial behaviors. They may be hyperoral or hypersexual, and very often it's misdiagnosed. Um, I recently completed a study. The average family takes has to pursue a diagnosis for four and a half years before they're actually diagnosed. Next slide, please. Thus, uh, what you often see is that you've got a patient in long-term care who's disruptive, they carry an Alzheimer's diagnosis, but the staff walks around going, this isn't Alzheimer's. The second is Lewy body disease, which Greg mentioned quite well. Um, this is a patient who has fluctuating mental status they have a REM sleep disorder, so you put them in bed and their poor spouse is awake all night because the patient is sort of jumping around in bed. They are exquisitely sensitive to medications, particularly mood-controlling medications. So using one-eighth the dose 
is very often indicative of what you would use for Alzheimer's. They have psychosis, and a, most, many, but not all, have a Parkinsonism uh, that does not respond to the Parkinson's disease medications. They also develop autonomic dysfunction where they have orthostasis, where their blood pressure falls precipitously and they pass out or just simply fall. Next slide, please. What we're going to talk about today is using the theoretical model, progressively lowered stress threshold, or PLST, to help determine what behaviors are like and why they're occurring and how to intervene. Next slide, please. We look at Alzheimer's disease over the course of the illness as something that diminishes your ability to tolerate stress and also, the patient has heightened stressors, and I'll tell you why in a few minutes, um, that they, basically everybody has three behaviors. You have normal behavior where you're calm and relaxed. You have anxious behaviors where there's an increase in psychomotor behavior um, and discomfort, and the patient begins to want to leave. And then the third is dysfunctional behavior, sometimes called catastrophic behavior. This is a form of fight or flight. And what's important about it is when the patient reaches that behavior, they can't communicate effectively with you and they are not as functional as they were in the anxious stage or the normative stage. What's important to understand is that this is a gradual decline over time, but when a patient starts to become dysfunctional, they always become anxious first. So you can pick up on what's about to happen. Next slide, please. This slide simply demonstrates a typical day. Let's say you're in a care facility or an assisted living and you get the patient up early, you take them through breakfast and activities. Um, then around lunchtime, they begin to become a little anxious. They sit down, they have lunch, and then later in the afternoon or even in the middle of the night, they are becoming very anxious, very upset. If this is allowed to continue day after day after day, you will have to medicate, but in the beginning, you won't. Next slide, please. Let's talk about the symptoms nobody tells you about that cause a lot of problems in Alzheimer's dementias. We know about the memory for recent events, but one of the biggest losses patients have is their sense of time. Most repetitive questions have to do with when are we going to do something and how is it going to happen. But if you give the patient the actual time saying it's 10.29, that means nothing to the patient. So with repetitive questions, it's really critical to ask the patient why they're asking so that you can actually intervene uh, and get what they want. The other thing is the visual spatial perception. This patient doesn't see what you see. They don't hear what you hear. Um, what's called their association cortexes, that which gives what comes in from the environment meaning, is damaged. With visual spatial perception, the patient loses their depth perception, and they lose the ability to see things moving across a horizon. Next slide, please. The next are the affective responses that nobody really talks about. There's a loss of affect, but the patient becomes very self-absorbed, um, and this tends to drive caregivers crazy. 
they lose their inhibitions, and very important, they lose their tolerance for multiple stimuli. What's cool about it is the patient always tells you because they want to leave. Next slide, please. The next slide talks about planning losses. Planning losses have to do with the patient's executive function and then later in the disease, motor apraxia. The patient knows what they want to do. They can tell you what they want to do, but when they try to do something, they cannot get the steps in the right sequence in order to get the job done and reach a goal. So what you see is the patient will refuse to do the activity or not be able to start an activity or they wander up in the middle, not because they've forgotten what they're going to do, but because they can't figure out what step comes next, or they get things upside down and backwards and turned around. What's important here is that the person is very aware that this is going on, and it's totally frightening. So instead of saying, gee, John, you could put your sneakers on yesterday, you want to say, can I help? Or you want to distract them to break up that thought and then progress. Next slide, please. And then what nobody tells the family is a loss of stress tolerance. And the way we see this is night wakening, sundowning, late day confusion. It's very interesting. When you examine the studies on sundowning, it has nothing to do with light. It has everything to do with fatigue. Patients have repetitive behavior, agitation, and aggression. Next slide, please. Next slide. Excess disability is a very important concept in dementia. What it means is that there are conditions that uh, are characterized by decreased functional and problem increased uh, problem behaviors, but they're not directly attributable to the underlying pathology. And these conditions are generally reversible or prevented, can be prevented. Next slide, please. We have six basic causes of excess disability. The first is the most common, and that's fatigue. For this patient to see, uncode, plan their day, etc., what happens is it's exhausting. It's like if you were taking final exams every hour of every day. What we find is that these patients do much better if they get several short rests a day, usually in the morning, uh, about 30 minutes, and about 90 minutes after lunch. And it, in the early disease, it's very like a, uh, a timeout. You know, they're just having a break. In later disease, most patients nap. We want to intersperse high stimulus activities with rest, so we rest that brain. If the patient is up at night, and I want to repeat this, if the patient is up at night before you reach for the trazodone or sleeping medication, have them increase their rest period during the day. This will not keep them up at night if they rest during the day. Know your person's best time of day and plan activities uh, that are uh, intense, such as going to the dentist for the patient's best time of day. Use mornings, which is most people's best time of day, for meals and important things. Next slide, please. The second primary cause of uh, secondary excess disability is change. If this patient gets out of their routine and out of their basic environment, what happens is they have to think about everything they have to do. And the more they have to think about something, the less able they are to do it. So we 
let them have a consistent routine during the day. You can introduce change, but the basic activity of the day follows a predictable pattern. Please don't take them traveling. Um, with travel, you're tired, you're in a strange place, there's strange people, there's a lot more people. Um, for those of you who are interested in travel with people with Alzheimer's, we have a booklet that um, I would be happy to send you, uh, and we'll give you the address at the end. Consistent care line, uh, caregivers. And another thing is relocation effect. We anticipate that when a patient is transitioning into long-term care, that there's going to be about two to three weeks of what we call relocation trauma. And we plan for that and keep the stimulus low in the environment and try to work with that. And then finally, this is our time of year when we give out more advice on secondary behavioral symptoms simply because holiday decorations and all of the plans that go with it. Next slide, please. The third is inappropriate sensory input. The patient can only tolerate certain times and, and or I'm sorry, certain uh, group sizes. Uh, an older research study found that 23 appears to be the maximum group. We know that long-term care, the worst place that we have in the long-term care center for people with dementia is the dining room. And so we try and get them to either eat separately, eat early, or um, go into an area that's less uh, stimulating. Uh, provide respite during high-intensity activity. Uh, watch for responses to TV. We have a rule in our practice that you never watch anybody on TV who you wouldn't have to your house for dinner. TV causes more illusions and delusions, and it's so much easier to turn off the television than it is to um, try and give medication for this. Um, use the patient as a barometer for how much stimulus they can handle. If your patient is saying, I'm leaving, it's time to leave. Next slide, please. The fourth is excessive demands, and that includes uh, people questioning continuously um, and also uh, families who are in crisis or having conflict. We have to assume the patient is doing their best at any given time. Uh, we use reminiscence and validation, non-confrontational um, approaches. Uh, we teach the caregiver a prosthetic approach that if the patient is struggling with an activity or is un unable to start it, we assist them. Next slide, please. Affective responses to the perception of loss. Patients with Alzheimer's disease frequently suffer depression. Um, they are aware of their losses, they're frustrated, they're very frightened, um, and so they tend to lose, cherish things. If I were to come to you and take your car tomorrow, you'd be angry, and our patients are too. We use group therapy, we use activity-based care planning, where yes, as a nurse, I can bathe and dress and give medications and make sure they eat, but the most important thing with Alzheimer's disease is to get, keep the patient engaged during the day. Adult day programs are a godsend for many uh, caregivers who are just tapped out when it comes to planning an entire day's activities every day. Uh, next uh, slide, please. And then six, we have delirium, which Greg talked about. 
a little bit, which results from illness, discomfort. We recognize unmet physical needs such as pain, constipation, thirst, and seek medical attention when someone's having a catastrophic period and it isn't resolving after arrest um, or providing uh, activity and attention. We simplify the medication regimen uh, and treatment for concomitant conditions. We treat pain, uh, and very often with patients, we don't think about their uh, small pains and aches. Um, I had a patient not too long ago where um, the patient was placed on a mild pain medication of acetaminophen, um, which is um, Tylenol, uh, one gram twice a day for just general, his back hurt, his feet hurt, et cetera, from age uh, and arthritis, and he was fine. The minute somebody took him off of the acetaminophen, he started to scream and continued to scream until we started it again. Uh, wellness measures, uh, not trying to enforce the, the diet so that the patient doesn't eat. Patients with dementia tend to lose their sense of smell, so all they can taste comes from their tongue, which is sour, bitter, salty, or sweet. So if something's not sweetened, the patient won't eat it because it tastes sour, bitter, or salty. Um, and then general good primary care. Next slide, please. With problem solving, know the usual level of function and the pattern of decline of your person. If the behavior changes um, happen, you want to assess and treat the causes of excess disability. So in your mind, you should be running down, has a change occurred? Is he overtired? Is there a large group of people? Is he watching CNN all day long on a, a news feed? Keep the caregiver safe. I frequently am asking caregivers, do you think you're at risk? And most caregivers, even when they're at high risk, will very often say, um, you know, they feel safe. Uh, so we keep on as a reminder. And then keep a journal of the non-cognitive behaviors, what, where, why, when, and what happened, and what worked to resolve the issues. Next slide, please. When the behaviors become a problem, the first thing you want to do is recognize there is no magic medication. And behavioral things are not used instead, but they're the first line of defense. First, stop what you're doing. Try to move the person to a safe, quiet place. Apologize. You've done nothing wrong, but you're sorry they are upset. You cannot agree with disagree with somebody who's apologizing to you. Second, agree. So, John, I'm so sorry you're upset. I agree with you. That would make me upset. What agreeing does is it puts you at the same side of the table as the patient when trying to solve problems instead of you becoming the dementia police. Uh, the third thing is you want to say you're going to try and fix it. Let's say the patient has lost their car and the Department of Motor Vehicles has sent them a letter saying you can't drive. What you want to do is say, you know, I'm going to write them back tomorrow. I don't have time to do it today, but I'm going to write them back tomorrow. I'm so sorry you're upset. That buys you more calm than a lot of things. Record what happens. Distract with food. 
but redirecting a patient who's catastrophic generally doesn't work until you can get them back into the anxious or normal behavior. And then avoid that trigger in the future. Next slide, please. With the outcome measures, we look at low incidence of problem behaviors. In my two studies, uh, we've seen uh, statistically significant declines on uh, night wakening. We see stable weight. We see low levels of mood-controlling medications being used, slow disease progression, and a low incidence of safety issues. Caregivers and families sometimes are happy about it, sometimes they're not so happy, but we need to measure it anyway. For more information about this webinar series and other resources, including videos and podcasts, please visit resourcesforintegratedcare.com and follow us on Twitter at integrate underscore care.